Welcome to Building Sustainability Podcast with me, your host, Jeffrey Hart, aka Jeffrey the Natural Builder. Every fortnight, join me as I talk to designers, builders, makers, dreamers, and doers, exploring the wide world of sustainability in the built environment by talking to wonderful people who are doing excellent things. Hello, and welcome to episode 98. This week, we are with Marianne Sir. We are talking about retrofitting historic buildings. Before we get into the episode, just a few events to tell you about. There is Future Build in London from the 7th to 9th of March, that's 2023. Go along and see the Architects Climate Action Network. And there's loads of really good people doing talks on everything from retrofit upfront carbon designed for reuse this year more than ever uh it seems like the the speakers are, are really top notch uh and it's a shame this year is the first year that i can't go for a long time because i have a big job on uh never mind uh you can go there and stroke a model of an earth floor that i made uh for last year's show so enjoy that um what else to tell you oh yes friends of the podcast uh material cultures uh you might remember them from episode 62 and 66 uh they are hosting some great workshops with other friends of the podcast so will stanix and becky little um are doing a hemp and lime workshop and also a clay and straw workshop um there is links to that in the show notes also with that one, there is discount places for people who might not otherwise be able to attend. So make sure you get in contact. Um, and also, if you haven't read it already, um, make sure you pick up a copy of Material Culture's book. It's called Material Reform uh, and it's blooming good. Uh, finally, on the events, uh, Marianne Sir, guest on this podcast. Uh, is going to be at the Home Building and Renovating Show at Birmingham NEC, the 23rd to the 26th of March, 2023. She is doing some talks and on some panels. So if this episode is good for you, then maybe get along and get your questions answered by Marianne in person. Um, now a huge thanks to the new patrons for this podcast. Uh, that is Tudor Tesco Venue. Sorry if I've butchered your name, Tudor. Uh, I believe you've come back. Uh, I think I've seen your name before. Uh, also to Mary, one name Mary, uh, Ben King. Thank you very much, Ben. And Aniko Hegedus. Aniko has increased their support uh, so that now I will be carving them a wooden spoon. And I've got some beautiful cherry wood. Uh, and I'm going to be starting those soon. So if you are waiting for a spoon... Do bear with me, they are coming. As per usual, I'm a little bit behind on those. And just to say, if you are thinking about becoming a patron for the podcast, um, then to entice you, there is a load of bonus episodes, extra little snippets. Uh, there's a tour of my tiny house. Good. And just to say that I have got three earth floors going in this week across the country and totaling uh, about 150 square meters yeah i'm very excited to get out there and install those um i've been tweaking my mix recently and i'm very very pleased with how it's developed um yeah really enjoying getting to dedicate some time to earth floors um so if you think you might like an earth floor then 
make sure you get in touch as per usual uh, there are links in the show notes um to all of the events that i've spoken about in this intro um also all the books that we talk about in this episode yeah make sure to check out the show notes all right then enough of my chat here's marianne enjoy the podcast mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. burrowcom slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com i am a a building surveyor chartered building surveyor uh specializing in historic buildings um i've sort of learned a lot of what i know on the job which i think is really important a lot of hands-on work doing my own projects my own houses other helping other people um, and I think I've had a, a very lucky career, a lot of lucky breaks, uh, an awful lot of fun and adventure. And um, I'm just completely dedicated to the cause of saving historic buildings. I, I mean, I'm in the building trade and I'm a little bit ashamed to say I'm, I'm not entirely sure what a building surveyor does. Um, so why, could you give us a... A sort of rundown of what what the role entails. A, build, a building surveyor is really um, involved with looking after existing building stock, inspecting buildings, condition of buildings, and also um, specifying work for repair on buildings. And as you can imagine, there's a whole range of specialisms within building surveying, from people who specialise in very modern, high-rise flats, all sorts of different things, party wall problems, etc. But I specialise just in historic buildings. So anything that's pre-1900, really, is, uh, is where my interest starts. So I mean, when would people call on a building surveyor? Is it just when a building's bought or sold or when there's an issue? Or... So if you're, if you're buying a building, you would get a building survey um, as part of the process of of looking at that building and getting a mortgage etc uh, and that can be uh, either done by valuation surveyor but better still a building surveyor particularly if the building is in 
slightly dodgy condition and you want to know exactly what it is you're letting yourself in for before you hand over those wads of cash. So uh, really important to get somebody who understands that building, who can predict what the possible problems might be. Um, but also, if you if you have a building that you're worried about, if there's a, a crack, if there's a damp problem, if there's an issue of any sort, you might get a building surveyor in to look at that and to report on it and to organise the repair of that building. So I suppose what we do is sort of what architects do, but with existing buildings primarily. It's the easiest way to describe it, I think. <laughs> I like that. I mean, how how in depth do you go when you're when you're wandering around a, a new property? Depends how interesting it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, as I say, I don't get involved in new buildings. I'm just really involved in old buildings. But uh, mm-hmm. old buildings are such fascinating places. You never know what you're going to find, and if you take a, a group of enthusiasts around an old building it can take hours and hours to get through it because you'll discover so many things along the way um, that are so fascinating Uh, it really is a wonderful world the world of historic building repair and uh, something i would recommend anyone who's interested in history and old buildings um, should should find out more about and and um were you always destined to be uh, a specialist in old buildings or I think I probably or was. That was. That you came to later. Yeah. Well, I think by the time I was fifteen, I'd probably visited virtually every national trust house in the country with my with my mum and dad. Uh, that was Brilliant. Sunday afternoons out, and um, I uh, did a building surveying degree because I knew I wanted to work with old buildings. And I happened to meet a chap uh, at Leicester Cathedral who was working there, do, repairing some woodwork at Leicester Cathedral, and. Uh, got chatting to him and he told me about something called the Society for the Protection of Ancient Buildings. And that was just the start of everything that followed. I found out about the SPAB, looked them up and then discovered amazingly that they ran something called the SPAB Scholarship. It's been running since about 1930 and it is for architects, engineers and building surveyors. And it's basically a nine month travelling scholarship or you do it with uh, two or three other people who you've never met before, go off on this trip, buy a car together before you've even met each other, and <laughs> off you go on a sort of a, a nine-month blind date. And it is amazing. Um, because the SPAB scholarship's been running since 1930, there are all over the country, there are uh, former SPAB scholars, and they put you up all around the country and you just get a list at the beginning of the week of where you're going and you go and stay with people you've never met before and then have the most extraordinary sort of adventure. One day you might be flint napping at Grimes Graves with Bernard Bartram and the next day you might be up St Paul's Cathedral in the Dome looking at it with the engineer wondering what the crack is and then down to Devon to help repair a cob building. Um, So absolutely extraordinary. We spent time on Orkney went right the way through Scotland, rough casting buildings, uh, timber frame buildings in Shrewsbury, staying with a wonderful architect that we spent nine months just traveling the country, looking at old buildings, doing things with our hands, meeting fascinating people from a whole range of different things. And um, you come out at the end of that nine months with uh, a load of sketchbooks and a head full of information. Absolutely fantastic. So uh, that really did um spur me on 
uh, the, right at the start of my career. And is that different to um, the fellowship? Because we've had um, Alex Gibbons on the podcast. Ah, yes. Yeah. So, so the fellowship. Um, now I can't remember exactly what year that started, but that's not been running for quite as long, about thirty or forty years. The fellowship is designed for craftspeople, so it's a very similar scheme, um, but it is for carpenters, stonemasons, um, uh, thatchers. Um, all sorts of people, any trade. I think they've even had sign writers um, on the course. Um, so if you are a, 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 a competent craftsperson who is involved in building conservation, um, that is the scheme for you. And I think there are, mm-hmm. there are usually three or four fellows every year that run an, in sort of parallel to the scholarship. And every now and again, we all meet up and do stuff together. Um, and uh, and that's great fun too. Learning from fellows, learning from scholars, scholars learning from fellows. Uh, so, yeah. so it's the most unique and extraordinary experience anyone could possibly have. I think I imagine that the coming together of the the two, the fellowships and the scholars, is is such a an enlightening experience for both sides of the the sort of I want well, don't don't want to call it a divide but um yeah the, yeah. the building industry I yeah guess. and uh william morris when he set up the spab back in 1877 uh he was very much involved with the arts and crafts movement and really at, at the core of that was this idea that we didn't want to make buildings by having some architect sitting in the office drawing it all up and then passing it over to some people on site a building a really good building is a combination of the designer coming together with the craftspeople, giving the craftspeople a degree of sort of um, a freedom to execute that that thing in the way they want. So, but it's very much working together, designer and and craftsperson, so that you come out with the best possible outcome. So, I, I following through that idea from the arts and crafts movement, the the, the SPAB has always encouraged. Um, the professionals, the architects, the surveyors, the engineers to work with the craftspeople and learn from each other, which which we really do. And I think the most extraordinary eye-opener for me is, you know, I spent four years doing a degree in building surveying and came out knowing virtually nothing, really. It's not until you get on site and you experience what it's like to repair a ceiling or to repair a wall or to understand how difficult it is to take out a pane of glass in an old window. Um that you can begin to appreciate how you're going to put this plan together for the repair of a building. So you hands-on, being hands-on is, a, is an essential element of being any, you know, being an engineer, an architect, a surveyor, as, uh, as are so many professions. I mean, you can't imagine a doctor training just from books without, and then, you know, going into the, into the operating theatre to do his very first operation on a live patient, you know, it wouldn't work. So in the same way, you need to get hands on, you need to experience the feel of these materials to understand how they work and how you can how you can build with them. Would you say that you're because of the SPAB, you're a bit more hands on than your your average building surveyor? Yes, absolutely. Um, Although I would encourage all building surveyors to go and repair their garden shed or repoint their their wall or whatever and just have a go at these things but i've been really lucky in that um i I, after the scholarship i did go and work for an architect for a few years 
um, a specialist conservation architect in Bristol. And, and that was fantastic. I mean, that was really, really exciting and interesting. But I still felt as though I there was a lot of information I still needed to get, a lot I didn't know. And uh, I, it just so happened that a friend of mine, a builder friend who I'd known for a while, rang me up and said, I've just found this amazing derelict building in Leicestershire. It's been empty for 50-odd years, and it's come on the market. And he said, how about we buy it and we repair it? We can be the designer, the builder, and the client all rolled in one. And then we just try and sell it and, and not lose any money on it. And I said, well, that sounds like a great plan, but you know, how am I going to pay my mortgage while we're doing this? It didn't quite work because I'd have to leave my job. And in that same week, I was offered the role in BBC's restoration programme, um, which meant that I was working for one week in four, uh, filming all around the country. And of course, then it, that opened that up that opportunity. I ran, rang my builder friend back and I said, yes, please, let's buy it. Let's put in an offer. And, and we did. And we got this incredible building. And so I was filming for one week, staying in lovely hotels and then uh, roughing it on someone's couch for the next three weeks, turning up to site every day and repairing mud walls. So it was a real contrast, but a fantastic couple of years of my life doing that and having that hands-on experience. So it was mud walls, so wattle and daub, was it? Well, it was, all, it was a mixture. Uh, well, it was, it was actually just mud in Leicestershire, cob okay. as, it, mud, as it's called in Leicestershire, but pretty much the same as cob in Devon. Um, but also brick, thatch, uh, plaster, all sorts of materials. Absolutely fantastic um, to have a go at doing all these things, experimenting with all these things that um, if it was a client and you were being paid to advise, you'd think, well, dear, I don't know if, I, if I'd uh, risk advising this. I've never done it before. But because it was our building, we we just had to go at so many things. We put down uh, lime ash floors. We put down limecrete floors. Um, we experimented with rough casts and lime plasters, uh, all sorts of things. Um, and uh, it was just a fantastic time. It really was amazing. And I learned so much. But even little things like how to mix a lime mortar, you know, how to use a shovel. And the first time I picked up a shovel, my builder friend, Anthony Goode, his name was, who's sadly no longer with us, an absolutely extraordinary man. Um, and... Yeah. Um, he uh, he said, Marianne, you don't hold a shovel like that. Come here. And he showed me how to do it, you know, and he showed me how to turn over mortar and how to mix it properly. And it's it, it's those tiny little things that I suppose traditionally were passed down from father to son in that wonderful tradition of, of building craft um, mm -hmm. that that we need to learn. Yes, it's the it's all those little efficiencies. And, yes, uh, Absolutely. You know, the, the little micro uh, adjustments in angle that, that someone who sees a shovel as just a shovel uh, might not might not understand. Yeah, absolutely. So so that was really fantastic. Um, two years repairing this poor little cottage that had uh, someone else wanted to knock it down and uh, brought an engineer in to support his case to knock it down. And uh, luckily, uh, the local conservation officer stepped in, brought in um, English Heritage, um, as it was at the time, and got their engineer down to sort of produce a counter report to say, no, it's perfectly savable. And hence, we, we managed to get hold of it. And it's still standing in a, in a little village called Kibworth Beecham in Leicestershire. 
Um, we had a, a wonderful couple who bought it. I visited them a few weeks ago, actually. Uh, and, um, and they love it. They absolutely love it. And it's so satisfying to see a house that could so easily have been lost with that love and care and a bit of luck. Um, we've managed to bring it back and it's now a, a lovely home for somebody. Oh, that's wonderful. Did you, uh, did you go into the house with your building surveyor hat on and, and start poking things? Or was it? No, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. Um, uh, but it's, sometimes it's quite difficult to resist, especially when we did something a bit experimental and we wanted to see if it was still standing. But, um, uh, no, it, it's, it's looking great, the house. And I was so pleased to see how well, well loved it was. Uh, it really was a wonderful outcome. Brilliant. I wanted to ask you a little bit about the SPAB in terms of there's one key key principle that that always sort of lodges in my head, and I went and did a an SPAB working party uh, in Rickmansworth in an old an old tithe barn I think it was, uh, and we were doing lots of repairs with slate sorry tiles we were doing lots of uh, tile repairs in a in a plinth wall. Um, and the idea was to to make the repairs obvious. Um, and at the, the time, it was quite quite hard to get my head around why why that was a good thing. I mean, one of the key tenets of the SPAB repair philosophy is this idea of honest repairs. We don't want to fake things up. If we repair something, the repair in itself should be beautiful. It should it should stand proud as a repair, as a piece of modern day craftsmanship. So. Um, but tile repairs are a very useful way. If you if you have a, a piece of stone and just a little bit of it has decayed and there's a bit of a void, you don't want to take out that whole bit of stone um, if the rest of the stone is still fine. Um, but if it's just a little void you need to fill, you also don't want to have to cut a piece of stone template it to fit in that little void. So a tile repair is a very effective means of producing a technically good repair but with material that um, requires the minimum amount of removal of historic fabric. Mm-hmm. So you're just piecing in a tiny amount. But that the tile repair in itself, using nice handmade tiles, lime mortar, can be a beautiful thing. And it's just sort of a, it's, um, it's a little marker in history to, to show that, that that has happened. At that point in time, you were in Rickmansworth, at a SPAB repair party repairing that building. And, and hopefully that will be there in 500 years' time and someone will be looking at, marvelling over it. Isn't this a wonderful thing? If you did it well, <laughs> I, I've, I've, If you I've, didn't do it very well, they'll probably take it out and do it again. But <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to think I did quite a good job. I remember it being incredibly yeah. hot and uh, there was a, a great deal of difficulty keeping um, all the lime from, from carbonating uh, or drying out and not carbonating. Oh, you're a lime man. I can, I can tell. Yeah, I've, 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 you understand your lime. I've done a bit. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what, what would be the the problem with? So, if I'd have just found you know a nice piece of similar stone or the same type of stone and just popped it in that hole, what what would be the issue with that? Well, it wouldn't necessarily be the issue. And of course, you can't generalize when it comes to repairs. Every repair is different, and there's all sorts of different ways of of dealing with something, but um, and sometimes put it, finding a piece of stone that matches is the right solution. I mean, if you if you took a, a bath stone, a, a terrace in in the middle of Bath where you've got those beautiful ashlar blocks, you wouldn't start sort of scarring the building with little tile repairs. It would look terrible. But then the architectural concept is arguably sort of more important in something like that. 
than than the individual repair. So mm-hmm. it really is horses for courses. But certainly with ancient medieval work and that sort of thing, tile repairs, if they blend into the palette of materials that are already there, I think is a very valid way of producing a beautiful piece of work. Yeah, absolutely. I was in, uh, where was I, Lincoln uh, at the end of last year and was looking at one of the buildings on one of the very steep streets up to the castle and it had lots of little tile repairs here there, and everywhere. I really enjoyed sort of seeing, uh, I guess, the the journey of the the building. Yeah, well, tile repairs originally in the 19th century, we think were actually covered over. Right. They started off as, as being sort of set back and then plastered over. And then over the years, the plaster eroded off. And then you can see sometimes 19th century tile repairs behind eroded plaster. And I think it sort of generally, um, over a period of time, just became a, a sort of a fashionable way, um, very much sort of pioneered by the SPAB of, of showing the, the honesty of the repair. Mm-hmm. So I think it, it, that in itself has evolved from, you know, from its beginnings. Right. And, and this this principle isn't just uh, you know for stone stone repairs with with tile, so uh, you can see it in in windows and in timber frames. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think certainly timber frame buildings very often we would use we'd make a, a purpose made um, uh, strap wrought iron strap um, and uh, template it and get it to exactly the right shape to fix a joint in a in a frame. Where the tenon has decayed, it's lost its sort of structural um, soundness, and, it, and you just use a, a metal strap in order to fix to, you know, to to reinstate the strength of that joint, and and then that strap becomes part of the history of that building. I think that's a, a really great way of expressing um, expressing a repair. I mean, I, I live in a timber framed house myself, and there are lots of lots of old straps. Um, throughout the whole house that I, I couldn't date them. Um, but I think it, it's just sort of a, an un, a a very sort of unselfconscious way of repairing a building. You just, you know, it's a practical, pragmatic way of, of, of fixing something. Mm-hmm. And then over a period of time, it becomes part of that, that history. Yeah, I was quite surprised to see um, when timbers had rotted out, uh, say, at the bottom of a, of a wall, uh, the the practice seemed to be to, to remove just the rotten bit rather than replacing a whole timber, which in my, I do mostly um, new builds. Um, my sort of mindset would obviously be, you know, replace the whole thing with a, a solid bit. Um, and so that was quite an, an interesting uh, shift in perspective for me. Yeah, well, I, I I mean, I work a lot on timber frame buildings in Oxfordshire uh, and I've got lots of people I work with, really skilled carpenters. Um, and we... When whenever there's a, a rotten bit, we sort of agonise over the best way to to tackle it. But certainly, if if it's possible to to leave the bulk of that post, which is usually supporting wattle and daub panels or something else, you would just take out the minimum in order to make it sound, and scarf on a new bit of wood, um, which can be done in a way you know it's very skillful work and then requires the whole building to be propped up and just to get to that little bit. But providing the scarf joint is properly um, thought through and executed it, it's a, a very strong repair i'm working in a building um, recently um, and there was a telegraph pole in the corner of the building that re- replaced the original jail post and uh, 
the timber framer who is a fantastic guy sim uh, finn syme and he uh he hated this telegraph pole and he wanted to put back a nice jowl post, you know, beautifully crafted. And um, uh, But I managed to argue that because the telegraph pole had been there probably since about the 1930s, it was structurally perfectly good doing the job of a jowl post. And uh, in the end, I won. We, we <laughs> kept the telegraph pole, much to his <laughs> disappointment. <laughs> I think that's that's an interesting sort of topic, isn't it, about you know keeping old buildings going and and there's a sort of desire from from some people to sort of keep them in one specific time zone and you know uh consistently repair them back to that that era and how do you well how do you feel about that the the sort of arguments around that well i mean again very much spb you every age has its own level of interest you know adding another layer of history to that building um so to strip something back just because it's not the original doesn't go right back to the beginning of that building would be crazy because you'd be taking away so much history um and william morris expresses that beautifully in his manifesto as well do read the william morris spab manifesto which is just a page long and just absolutely sums up all these ideas um so I so I totally agree with keeping those layers of history and respecting the, the the layers of history that followed on. The thing where I always get it always gets a bit tricky is when you get to about nineteen twenty nineteen thirty, and I know um, Matthew Slocum at the SPAB is very keen on his nineteen twenties nineteen thirties fireplaces um, and would keep them in you know going down that line of true SPAB philosophy, whereas. I just think, oh, I just, I just hate it. 1930s fireplace, got to go. You know, maybe in another 200 years, we'll be looking at that completely differently, saying, wow, isn't this a beautiful 1930s fireplace? Let's sort of repair it with some tiles. <laughs> but right now, I think, get it out, see what's behind. So I think. Um, Is that because of style or materials? I don't know. I, it, it's just a bit too recent for me. Right, but of course, in the nineteenth century, they hated Georgian buildings. They were too recent, and they were knocking those down to look for some sort of spurious sort of medieval remains behind. Yeah. But now we, you know, we we worship Georgian buildings. We think they're wonderful. So I think it's just that nineteen thirties is just still not quite a hundred years ago, and uh, just a little bit too close for a lot of us. So in, in seven um, years, but, uh, might you time change your will mind? tell. <laughs> not in seven years <laughs> not in seven years but maybe uh 57 years yeah if i'm still around <laughs> <laughs> i suppose it's sort of like that thing uh when you see old graffiti in an old you know church or stone building or something and you go wow that's incredible and then you see you know yeah. gavin scratched into it next to it from something yeah really modern, yeah and you hate it <laughs> and they're you know they're yeah. the same thing but yeah, we feel differently about it. Except them. historic graffiti always has serifs, doesn't it? That... <laughs> I think that's the difference there. You know, if Gavin was carved in in a beautiful font with serifs, yeah, I think we'd let it stay. So um, typography is important when graffiti. Typography is important when it comes to graffiti. Yeah, absolutely. Brilliant. <laughs> Why do you think it's uh, important to to keep these buildings uh, going? Well. I think as a nation, we would be so much poorer if we didn't have them. I mean, I, can you imagine this country 
if we didn't have old buildings um it wouldn't it wouldn't be england it wouldn't be the uk um they are they're just a wonderful thing historic buildings um and they're just an absolute joy and delight to live in i can't imagine living in a modern building um uh, I just, I just love the the sense of uh, history of of all those people who have come before me. Uh, in fact, every now and again, my children say to me, "Mum, has anyone ever died in our house?" And I have to sort of look at them and say, "No, I'm sure no one's ever died in this house, even though it's 500 years old." Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, I don't know. There's something just special about them. I I can't really put my finger on it. Um, but it's just the uniqueness, the wobbly walls, the funny shapes, um, the lovely textures. Uh, you know, it, it, I think just from a from that sort of cultural point of view, it, we, to lose historic buildings would be an incredible loss. But also, you know, when you think about the embodied energy contained within historic buildings, if we knocked them all down and started again, we'd probably build some sort of modern crap that didn't meet any sort of decent um, standard, and uh, we'd lose all of that embodied energy that is contained within our existing housing stock. So I think we have to look at ways um, of saving them, of l- really caring for them, saving the best bits, but also we do have to look at ways of making them more energy efficient because we can't continue to live in houses that are just leaking energy. In your in your work, is that becoming more common then for people to be looking at kind of improving yeah retrofitting historic buildings is becoming a major part of what i do now uh, an integral with the repair as well mm-hmm. um so if we're re-roofing something we're thinking about how we can get really good insulation into that roof or if we're repairing a wall we're thinking about whether we can insulate the wall at the same time um so it becomes very much part of what we're doing it's interesting because when i wrote the um the old house handbook back in uh, well it's about 15 years ago it was published um and um uh, there was there was just the passing reference to insulation in the old house handbook and then within just a few years we realized it was just this real we'd missed this opportunity to talk about retrofitting um and so we wrote the old house eco handbook um, which is a companion volume. Very good, it is. Which too. has since had yes, you and you've got the second edition there. I'm glad yes. to see. Yeah, so so we wrote the first one, um, and then within about seven years, we realised that things had really moved on, and we had to update that. So we've written a second edition since. Yeah. Um, some of the techniques we were using in the first book, some of the materials were no longer available, um, and some fantastic new materials had come out by then. So. Um, I think we've we've learned an awful lot. We've been through a massive learning curve. But I think we are plateauing now as to the way we do this. Um, mm-hmm. We're understanding the best way of doing things now. Uh, new things are still happening. New materials are still coming on the market. But I think um, we, we understand what's going on far more so than we did. We'll be back after a quick break. If you're looking for all things BMX racing, you've found the right podcast. Here at Lane 8 BMX Podcast, I'll speak to the local racer, the national racer, and even the Olympic level racer. I'm talking kids to the weekend warriors and much more. So get comfortable, turn up the volume, and remember to snap on green. Yeah. And is there any issue with your you're sort of maybe not replacing like for like, say in a, a timber frame building that used to have you know, mud or or brick 
if if you're re- replacing that with some insulation like a, a hempcrete or or something similar to that do you feel like there's a confliction of interests in you know what's best for the house and the occupants uh and what's true to the original building well timber frame buildings i deal with a lot and that's re- it's a really interesting subject um uh, i think first of all you have to really you have to look at that building and understand what's significant about it and you have to work out which bits of that fabric are really sacred that you cannot touch. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to timber frame buildings, I think the only way to secure them for the future is to cover the frame one side or the other. I think you've got to do it. Mm-hmm. Because a timber frame building that is where the frame is exposed on both sides has a four-inch wall with gaps all round between the infill panel and the frame. Um, you're never going to get any degree of um, insulation within a wall like that. Mm-hmm. So you have to cover the frame inside or out. Um, you have to decide which which you want to do. And, of course, you've got to get listed building consent for that as well. Um, technically, the best way to insulate a building is to put the insulation on the outside, um, keep the, the warmth on the inside. Um, so what we're doing, tending to do now quite a lot of, is when we re-render... Well, when we, when we look at timber frame buildings, we first of all look at historic photographs. And very often, if you look at the historic photographs, the, the frame was rendered on the outside. Ah. It wasn't exposed. This whole fashion for exposing the timber frame is um, sort of a, uh, came from the late 19th century onwards. So very often these buildings were rendered either because of fashion in the 18th century, they dictated that they wanted to get rid of these old-fashioned timber frames and cover it over with a nice plaster. Or because maybe they just were fed up of it being cold and drafty. And so covering it over with a layer of plaster was a, a sensible thing to do. Now, if you can establish that that timber frame was originally plastered on the outside, as we have in quite a few projects now, you can get usually get listed building consent and put together a case for replastering it on the outside. And if you're going to replaster a timber frame on the outside, then why not fix wood fibre board to the outside of that timber frame and plaster onto that? That way, you, it's, it's almost reversible as well. If as long as the fixings you use, uh, you're using sensible fixings, the wood fibre board goes on top of the frame, plaster on top of that. It could all be taken down in the future if, if we suddenly uh, crack nuclear fusion and heating houses is no longer an issue. You know, we could take it all down and expose our timber frames. Um, Although, of course, there is another issue, and that is um, particularly on the southwesterly elevations of timber frame buildings, they are decaying. And if you can cover them in a wood fibre board, which is very breathable, you can actually protect the frame at the same time. So it, it seems like a really sensible thing to do with timber frame buildings to think about covering them over uh, on the outside. I've always thought that external insulation makes just so much more sense in... For, for multiple reasons um but not having to deal with where the the floor joists go into the wall and and all of the complications yeah. of that uh seems seems like the most straightforward and you know way, the way to do it easiest and best yes well you are of course avoiding all those thermal bridges so things like internal walls and floors etc uh but there are a lot of other complications externally insulating, like you often have to extend your rafter feet um, because your roof no longer has enough of an overhang um, and replacing the gutters. And, and dealing with the plinth is also 
quite complicated because you can't take wood fibre board right down to the ground. So you have to think of, uh, of different ways of dealing with that as well. And then you often have to move the drains, the gully points, um, when you when you externally insulate. So, and then you've got all your services fixed on the outside, your your gas meter and all that sort of stuff. So, as part of a really massive retrofit, external insulation, um, especially if you're redoing the roof at the same time and all of those sorts of things, is very sensible. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're trying to do a smaller job, then it's not always practical. And of course, if you have a really beautiful sort of iconic timber frame building, close studded, uh, a very decorative frame, then your chances of, well, uh, externally insulating it, of getting listed building consent to do that are probably quite slim. Mm -hmm. So in which case you would be looking at internally insulating instead. And then losing all the the timbers from inside and i can see see behind you you've got lots of lots of timbers on show and they're beautiful i would yeah i would be very sad to to lose those yeah yeah absolutely um it is an issue um but you can't have a a warm building and a timber frame that is exposed on both sides Mm -hmm. so you've you've something has to go unfortunately yeah so we sort of touched on you know how how far to go i suppose that the two extremes are enerfit so the passive house uh, retrofit standard at the very very top end and sort of down to maybe just popping some insulation in the in the loft um how sort of where on that scale do you feel is is about the right right level of retrofit well, of course, every building's different. Um, and I visit a lot of clients who are just fed up of living in a freezing cold house where the energy bills are colossal. And the first, the two quick wins are, of course, uh, loft insulation. If you've got flat ceilings, um, many old houses have got sloping ceilings. Um, so that's another tricky issue. Um, and sloping ceilings very often completely uninsulated. Um, but windows are the other big issue. And uh, windows, I think, um, are something we need to look more closely at. In fact, um, I'm in the process of organising with a, a, a few friends a uh, a windows conference in September. Oh, brilliant! Um, be good to get the details uh, get the details out. But we are supported by the SPAB. We got, we've got a two day windows conference in Warwick at Warwick University in September. Oh, lovely! And the idea is, I think you, the starting point with windows is that you look at each window individually in all buildings there's usually a jumble of lots of different windows right from some really interesting early ones right through to sort of uh, 1950s metal window to the odd upvc one that's been replaced a couple of years ago illegally um but um um i think you have to look at each window individually you have to decide which ones are significant and those significant windows you need to repair and secondary glaze and the modern ones that aren't significant, I think you need to take out and replace with something that is energy efficient. Mm-hmm. Um, what that is, of course, is there's there's the big question. Uh, and that's something we're going to be discussing at the conference. But um, secondary glazing is a, it's a, a, a massive issue in its own right, um, but is the way forward for an awful lot of old buildings. Uh, what, um, what issues are there with secondary glazing? Well, there's lots of different sorts of secondary glazing, uh-huh. but I think it all ha- comes down to how you use the window. And this is something people very rarely think about. 
they move into an old house and they just get them all secondary glazed in the same way. The thing about how you use a window. So, for instance, um, in my house, we've got some, we've, they're all sort of single glazed windows. Uh, they were all drafty when we moved in. There were some bits of secondary glazing, but we needed to upgrade that. So we worked out which windows we never open between, say, November uh, when it starts to get cold and March when it starts to warm up. And those windows, we use um, a magnetic system, uh, a magnetic plastic system, a fantastic um, system. It's just a, a, a plastic panel with a magnetic strip around the edge and you put a magnetic strip around the frame of your window. You offer it up. Bob, your uncle, you've got a beautifully sealed warm window. And then come the spring, when it warms up, you take it off, hoover out the spiders and put it in an old duvet cover under the bed until the following winter. Uh, it's brilliant. And for the period of time it's on the window, it works incredibly well um, because, of course, plastic is is warm to the touch compared to glass. It's, I think it's actually better than a glass secondary glazing system. And when you take it off the window, you get rid of it for the bulk of the year, then you can open the window and use it normally. Mm -hmm. And then you stick it back on again when it gets cold. Um, so, And all you're left with, it, well, while the plastic panel is off, is, is the strip around, the magnetic strip, which is fixed around the frame, which you can actually paint in with the colour of your frame. So it will virtually disappear. So it's a great solution. It's, it's relatively cheap, um, simple, and you can just forget about it for eight or nine months of the year yeah. but you've got the benefit of it over the winter time so i think the first thing to do is really think about which windows you never open between november and march and this is a great solution for that um there are also glass secondary glazing systems that are magnetic um and they're great as well um you get you do get more sort of clarity through glass and certainly if you were going to have that window it had that secondary glazing up all year round. I think the glass systems are better mm -hmm. just because you get better clarity through the glass than you do through the plastic. Um, and particularly if you're... One thing, the, the previous house I lived in was on a main road and we put in um, these magnetic glass secondary glazed panels uh, on the roadside and we could not believe the instant difference it made to the house in terms of noise, mm -hmm. absolutely incredible in terms of acoustic insulation. Um, I would thoroughly recommend it. Um, it just completely cut down that traffic noise so that you didn't notice it. Um, so, so if you're living on a road, if you never open the windows on the roadside, as I think a lot of people living in roadside houses don't, then a magnetic glass, toughened glass, secondary glazing system is fantastic. I would totally recommend it. Brilliant. But then, of course, you've got the problem of windows that you open all year round. For instance, bathroom windows, which really, right through the year, right, I open my, my after a, I've had a shower, open the window just for a few minutes um, and uh, let the steam out. Um, and for those windows, you have to have some sort of easy-to-open system, so a sliding secondary glazing system. Or even if, if that window is sort of if that window isn't significant, if it is a relatively modern window, I would consider, you know, trying to get listed builder consent for a double glazed, really thermally efficient window in a in a 
in a bathroom where you open the window all year round. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's sort of the exception to the rule. Um, so, so start by thinking about how you use the window. Do you ever open it? Do you only open it during the warmer months? Do you open it every day of the year? And you have to put your windows into those categories and then work out a solution based on that. Lovely. I like anything that goes away from the one size fits all. I very much enjoy. So another issue around windows is um, air leakage. In your book, um, it said that, let me find the quote, uh, heat loss through air leakage is much faster than via conduction. And so I'm intrigued to know the sensitive ways or sort of sensitive to old buildings ways of sealing up leakages, certainly around around windows. So are you, are you talking about the actual frame of the window where it meets the aperture in the wall? Uh, I am at the moment, yes, but I was going to ask you then about actually within the window itself. It's very difficult with historic windows to seal them up, mm-hmm. um, which is why secondary glazing is so great, particularly the magnetic panels that you fix over the frame. So can you you can make those airtight then? Yeah. The, I mean, the better you fit it, the more airtight it will be. Mm-hmm. But they can be virtually airtight. I say virtually because you still might get a tiny bit of condensation forming on it within that cavity, mm-hmm. which proves that it's not entirely airtight. But it's virtually airtight. Um, and uh, so that's airtight from the from the internal room through that secondary glazing panel. But it is actually recommended, and I've never quite got to the bottom of this, but I have read that if you are secondary glazing a window, it is better to leave the historic window without um, draft-proofing it. So you're getting a little bit of ventilation in the cavity. Ah, interesting. To deal with any condensation. So uh, I think that depends on how, uh, how good your secondary glazing is. I mean, if it is super airtight, then you wouldn't need that Mm -hmm. ventilation in the cavity. But if it is losing a little bit of um, uh, water vapour through it, then you probably do need to leave the outer window without draft seal. Yeah. But I think you play around with these things. It's But it is very, very difficult to draft seal an old window. And I think you're better almost just to forget about it and just secondary glaze really, really well. Yeah, kind of deal with the bit that you can you can make almost as a, a new window within. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm I'm constantly amazed at even new windows that I've got are not really very well sealed. They they've got the draft seals around them, but I, I'm obsessed on a really windy day. I spend the whole time going around my house, holding my hand up around the edges of the windows, looking for the drafts. Mm-hmm. And it's quite extraordinary where you find the drafts. Um, but you can really tell um, on a dr- on a windy day. It's a great activity, actually. Um, Travelling around with your hand, just feeling for the drafts, um, like some crazy obsessed person. <laughs> um, but one thing, one thing I've been doing this year because we've been so worried about bills is um, we've got some fairly modern French doors, about twenty years old, and I cannot believe how drafty they are. Unbelievably drafty, and they've got great big gaps. They're oak made of oak so they've shrunk a bit and they've opened up all the gaps and i have got some rubber tubing tubing that i have poked down the gaps to really squash in around the gaps and then i've covered round with brown electrical tape to seal all the junctions <laughs> um so i mean that'll come off in the spring but for three months of the year um it has made a tremendous difference to the temperature of our sitting room 
just um just sealing around with brown electrical tape yeah. to keep you know to make it a bit more airtight i think a lot of these things they're all very heath robinson but it's about looking at where the drafts are the drafts are the killer in old buildings um and uh, if you can seal up the drafts in whatever means possible um then you know then you will be really improving your chances of keeping that house warm yeah um and is there there a danger of running into problems if you seal up too much i don't i've never worked in an old building where we've sealed it up so much that we suddenly you know you can't breathe inside yeah. um i think it's virtually impossible in an old building to to remove the draft to that extent right uh, we're not we're not going into mvhr territory here um we are just um you know cutting down the number of drafts uh to a, to a sort of manageable standard yeah we we sort of spoke earlier a little bit about um materials and how some of the materials or methods we might have been using uh, relatively recently might actually might have been potentially detrimental to the building um every product has a an eco label on it and uh you know we'll say breathable and eco and, and wonderful um how do you sift through the the greenwash um and and get to the products that are actually going to be good in your house i mean i talk to a lot of people before i specify things i get ring round a lot of people in the industry to get a really balanced view about things i mean i'm a big fan of wood fiber board i use it on walls on roofs on floors all the time um, in fact, wood fibre board is a great... It, we were talking earlier about infill panels in timber frame buildings. Um, and I think if you have lost the um, the original infill, so if, if you've got lovely old wattle and daub, obviously you would repair that and you would keep it. Or if you've got old brick in that panel, again, you'd keep that. But if you've got modern brick or modern block work in your infill panels, um, uh, I'd take it out and I'd put in... The, I think the two main options, I've, I've done both... Um, Hempcrete is great, but it is really fiddly and it's quite difficult to do. And unless you've got, you know, somebody who can do that for you uh, and do it well, um, then, you know, it's just too complicated to put hempcrete in. Um, Because also hempcrete, the the thing people do if you're just sort of a novice at it is they sort of squash it down. And once you squash it down, it doesn't have any of the insulation properties that it should have. Uh, when I did hem- when I hemcreted my my previous house in the in the uh, infill panels, the guy who was showing me how to do it, we used a stick a twig. He said, "Right, you don't want anything more than a twig. You just sort of try and um, get it down with a twig. You don't push it down. It's just simply just sort of leveling it out and getting rid of the air bubbles." Um, but I think now, unless you've got someone locally who you can use to do that hemcrete. Uh, far easier is to use wood, wood fibre board in infill panels. And um, the great thing is if, if you have no nothing in that infill panel, you can actually scribe the exact shape. You know, you hold your wood fibre board up behind it and scribe the exact shape, get a really nice tight fit. You can put some compraband around the edge of the, uh, the wood fibre board to get a decent joint there. And um, you set it back from the frame, sort of 15 mil, and plaster directly onto it if you want a plaster finish. But again, going back to that principle of you need to cover the frame one so- side or the other, even if you're using wood fibre board as an infill panel. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think wood fibre board is a great product for 
infill and wattland orb. Where do we get? Where do we start off with here? I can't remember now. Oh, uh, what materials? Uh, yes, we use? Yeah. yeah. How do you, how do you avoid yeah. the greenwash and choose the right the right materials? Yeah. Um, well, I I think um, I mean I, I'm always astonished that people recommend anything other than lime wash. Um, lime wash is the ultimate paint for me. Um, if you're particularly for external work, um, I would very rarely use anything externally other than lime wash um, on renders on timber on. Uh, on stone on brick mm-hmm. um and um it, it is ultimately breathable completely compatible with its substrate and essentially it, it's beautiful you know nothing looks like lime wash lime wash is fantastic uh the, the joy of lime wash you're sort of standing there when it starts to rain and watching it go from pale to dark and then as the rain stops it goes from dark to pale again it's just the most beautiful thing um why anyone would use anything other than lime wash, I, I can't understand. Um, and yet, you know, when you ring people up, they often recommend all these fancy paints instead of lime wash, um, supposedly breathable and all the rest of it, but nowhere near as breathable as lime wash mm. and probably about 10 times more expensive. You know, lime wash, you, you make it yourself. You, you blend the colours yourself. Um, why, why would you not do it? Um, I can't understand it, but that's one of my little hobby horses. Um, lime wash. We need a lime washing revolution. I think. <laughs> I think so. I I spent a little bit of time last year talking to cob builders down in the southwest, and a few of those were suggesting the the mineral paint type uh, option. And their thought was, if you've got a big building, your lime wash needs to be updated uh, or reapplied a, a fairly regular. I don't know if it's particularly yearly, but it's you know every, every number of years. If anyone's doing it yearly, they're not putting it on properly in the first place. Great. Well, say so I would give um, it at least five years. They, if it's okay, done so properly. five years, um, and they were saying the cost to put up a scaffolding to do you know to have someone come and, and spend you know it's quite a, a lengthy process to to lime wash on and burnish and um, they were they were sort of looking at it from a cost perspective for their clients in that it, it was better for them to do a, a coat of paint that would last. Uh, I'm not sure what the, the length of paint on a mineral mineral paint is, but um, that was their, their argument. And I'm, I'm not saying I'm, I'm with them. I'm just saying uh, that was the reasoning. Well, all I would I mean, I think, you know, if you've got an expensive scaffold up, you put on more coats of lime wash. Mm. Because I reckon you get sort of a year for every every thin coat, right? Um, if you've got water pouring down the side of that building, then it's going to come off. Um, but so is a mineral paint. Any paint is not going to withstand an awful lot of water. Um, the problem with with the modern paints is that they they flake off. Mm. So when you if if you get a paint that starts to flake, the cost of preparing that substrate of stripping down, of taking off all the flakes and preparing it ready for the next coat is colossal. It's far more than just slapping up another coat of lime wash. Um, you know, you can lime wash things usually off, a, off a, a, a scaffold tower. You don't need, unless we're talking, I mean, are we talking about a massive building here or are we talking about the average house? Um, it's not a big deal putting up another coat of lime wash. I, I lime washed my house 14 years ago and... Admittedly, it's the north elevation where it doesn't get the most of the weather, but 
it's still as good as the day it went on. Um, so, you know, I really, I think this argument about longevity is is not really valid. Um, it Even when lime wash erodes back, there's a beauty to the way it erodes back um, and it begins to look patchy over after five or six years. There's there's joy in that as well. And um, it's so simple to re-lime wash it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and often it's just a bit at the bottom that goes as well. So and that's easy to access, and you just go around and do it again. I think I think we've become sort of lazy about maintenance, building maintenance. We, we we're only specifying materials that we can have a written guarantee are going to last a lifetime. You know that's a crazy way to be thinking about historic buildings. They need constant maintenance and care. Uh, lime wash is is great because it tells us when there's a problem as well. If there is a damp patch in that building, if there's a gutter that's leaking it will show us that problem so that we can address it, we can put it right and, and stop it from happening. Um, so it sort of diagnoses its own building's problems. Um, and I just think, yeah, I, I just cannot un- understand because everyone's so sort of concerned about liability these days and offering these guarantees. Um, you really do need to think about the building first and foremost and what is best for that building and i think i think lime wash wins hands down every time brilliant and i think you know in terms of a a job that you can do yourself and be part of your buildings um you know life and love and repair and and continued yeah it's a sort of low level um low skill level i guess yeah accessible that's the word i was looking for something for everybody yeah yes yeah Great. As long as they're wearing goggles. <laughs> yes, and, and gloves. And, goggles and rubber gloves, yeah. <laughs> I think I read an article uh, by you from quite a few years back that I think was talking about you, you getting, was it maybe your husband to, to lime wash a building? And, uh, and his, his sort of face as you brought out more and more uh, PPE and... Uh, <laughs> He's a very long-suffering husband. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm, it, it's, uh, he's a rocket scientist, so he's high-tech and I'm low-tech. Um, ah, brilliant. And he was astonished when we uh, wattle and daubed our walls 15 years ago. He said, for God's sake, Marianne, there must be a better way of building a wall. Um, but he loved Sticks it. Sticks and mud. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he also, when I, when I designed our kitchen extension and told him how much it was going to cost, he calculated that we could buy a takeout meal every night for six years for the same price. (laughs) (laughs) But I got the extension. Great. (laughs) Unfortunately, I'm not a great cook, so uh, I think he got the rotten deal there. (laughs) So I wanted to talk about uh, a thing that I found interesting in your book, which was about doors. And we've just mentioned how um, you you've got your the the leaky French doors, um, and just a regular door. Every time you open it, kind of you know your the heat rushes out. So I was intrigued to um, to see the the idea of porches and vestibules um, in your book, and it's something I'd never really considered as having a eco function or a performance function. I always thought of them as a place to kick off your boots. Well, if you if you think about the revolving door of a department store. Um, that's a brilliant concept because all those people coming in and out all the time only ever lose the amount of heat from that quadrant of the revolving door. Um, and 
porches and vestibules work in the same way. You you come in the outer door, you shut it before you open the inner door. So you're creating that airlock rather than an, an enormous gush of air, a warm air disappearing from your from your house and re- being replaced with an enormous gush of cold air from outside. Mm-hmm. So very often is, for instance, in um, in Victorian terraces, they have long entrance corridors and you can easily fit a an inner door within that space. Um, and if you design that nicely, it's, it can be a door that you keep permanently open during the warmer months, but it's just that secondary line of defence in the winter. Uh, and, and a porch on the outside that, that is the same idea. Uh, I think it's quite a sensible way of, of just of holding that airlock and losing so much heat every time. Yes. I, mean, I live in a, a small house uh, that's quite well insulated, um, but I really noticed it. A couple of my friends are smokers, and when they're in and out of my door, I don't have any kind of porch or vestibule. And the the temperature in the house plummets every time they're, uh, they're going out for a smoke. Yeah. Well, if you think of how much it costs to heat all the, the volume of air within your house, mm. uh, and then you're going to be losing a, quite a large proportion of that every time the door is open. Yes. I think it, it makes sense. And I think an awful lot of energy efficiency does come down to how we use the house. Um, and I think we have to probably lower our expectations as well. I mean, we've certainly turned down the thermostat. We're just having heating on at times when we really need it. Um, we've been through quite a few days over the winter without any heating on at all, mm-hmm. um, just lighting the log burner um, and um, to warm it up in the evenings. It, you, you can get used to these things. And I think probably we, we're going to have to get used to them, aren't we? But but doing what we can, doing the maximum um, in terms of um, sensible sensible adaptations within our houses is is uh, is a good way to start yes uh is there a danger in people leaving their homes too cold in terms of the building fabric uh, moisture well um obviously if you've got a lot or if you've got very high relative humidity within your building you will find you're going to get mold developing on things and in fact you find it in loft spaces sometimes where people have super insulated their bedroom ceiling um, and suddenly you're changing the environmental conditions within your loft space. So you've got a much colder loft space because you're not getting the heat loss from the bedroom. And you'll suddenly find you get mould um, on all your Christmas decorations and your cardboard boxes that are stored up in the loft where you had none before. And it's just this idea of the relative humidity increasing as the temperature drops. Um, and you get to a certain point um, with the relative humidity where where mould will begin to grow. So uh, we do have to be a bit careful about these things. But again, just keeping your eyes open, looking for problems um, and, uh, and un- trying to understand why they're, why they're happening when we're changing these environmental conditions and doing what we can to address it is, uh, is just a really important thing. And dealing with the, the problem and not you know, the symptom. I think a lot of people would see mould and think, I need a mould-proof paint uh, rather than yes. what, what is the <laughs> causing this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I've got a big debate going with um, someone called Steve Hodgson at the moment, who is um, director of the uh, Property Care Association, about how long you should leave a window open after you've had a shower. Okay. Um, And about whether you just need to leave it open for sort of 30 seconds to equalise the pressure within the room, or whether you need to leave it open for half an hour until all of the condensation has disappeared from your window, from your mirrors. Mm. Um. So it's quite an interesting. I, I'd like to speak to. Uh, I'd like to hear from any scientists who have got have got an answer to this. 
Uh, Steve Hodgson's view is you just need to equalise the pressure and then close the window again rather than lose all the heat. Yeah. Um, uh, but if you just open it quickly and close it, you've still got the condensation on the yeah, you've still got the condensation on the on the mirror. But then you're you're bringing in all that cold air from outside, uh, which isn't helping the relative humidity. It's it's. Mm. And when cold air meets warm, you get you get condensation yeah. anyway. So that is so, an interesting um, debate. Yes, yes, for us sort of people like us who worry about these sorts of things. <laughs> <laughs> exactly how long to leave the bathroom window open for in the winter after a shower answers <laughs> on a postcard please <laughs> um so i've got one final question um just really uh so for people who are listening that maybe they've got a, an old building um for when they're getting a contractor to do some work for them how do they find a contractor that uh is going to use the right materials and i mean so i'm thinking specifically about a project that i went and put a floor into a nice earth floor um and the contractor was saying oh yeah well the client doesn't like cement but you know we just put some under there anyway when he wasn't looking um and i think that's pretty common you know uh maybe a more conventional contractor just sort of going to the materials they know it's quite understandable i think um how how do you find the the good good contractor that's going to really look after your your property i think getting a good builder is the greatest challenge that we have <laughs> in the historic building world uh it is so difficult there are some fantastic people out there but they are few and far between they can choose the nice jobs They'll also choose the nice clients as well. So be nice to your builder if you want to hang on to him um, because you need him more than he needs you. Um, and I, I think it's just very, very difficult to find people. Mm -hmm. um, what I would say is if you have a, a builder who is, is conscientious and who is good to work with and careful and skilled but doesn't know about, for instance, line pointing, line plastering, then consider offering to pay for him to go on a course mm. uh, where he can learn. If he's the sort of person who, I say he, maybe a she, um, is open to these sorts of ideas, uh, then that's a great thing. Um, because if you are already a skilled bricklayer, learning how to use lime is fairly straightforward. Mm -hmm. um, or if you're already a skilled plasterer, learning how to lime plaster is fairly straightforward. Um so, but we need to find people who want to do this. Um, I run a series of um, lime plastering courses at Coles Hill in Oxfordshire. Um, and we have some fantastic people come along, builders from all walks of life who, and homeowners who, and architects, all sorts of people who just want to come along and learn to lime plaster. We had a, have a fantastic uh, couple of days um, working with really skilled plasterers, um, teaching how to lime plaster. So there are courses around, dotted all around the country, um, and I think it's really important to try and support builders and encourage them to learn, particularly people who are interested in sort of diversifying into historic building work. But finding that builder, do not be bamboozled by a builder who you know is telling you things that are wrong. Um, ask them some quite specific questions and see what they say. You know, ask them what sort of mix they would use for a mortar or a plaster. 
if they can't give you a really straight, clear answer on that a question like that, then you know they're trying to um, fob you off. Um, but yeah, I think every anyone who owns an old house needs to have a certain degree of knowledge about it, just in order to employ the right people mm-hmm. um, and to keep an eye out for the problems. So you know, I, I love this idea of going back to the SPAB. Um, William Morris said, "We are only trustees for those who come after us," and I, I feel that very, very strongly um, in all the old houses I've lived in. That whatever I do now has um, has got to make that house better for the future and for whoever comes next. And uh, any homeowner should take that responsibility really quite seriously, uh, both in what they do and the people they employ. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Brilliant. Thank you, Marianne, for sharing such wonderful knowledge. Uh, Really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, Here she is telling you about how to see her at the Home Building and Renovating Show. I'll be speaking at the Home Building and Renovating Show uh, at the NEC on uh, the 23rd and 24th of March. So I'm going to be giving a couple of talks each day and also I'll be on the Ask the Experts stand so you can come and come and see me um bring a photograph of your particular problem and i will do my very best to to help you uh sort it out nice so as per usual links to all the things we spoke about in the show notes that is books that is william morris manifesto uh that is events uh click through to those and just before i go you are one of the people that made it right to the end And I think to celebrate, you should share this episode with all your friends and maybe tell them one interesting fact that you learnt. Hmm. Until next time. See you bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.